I've met a lot of really wonderful, interesting people when I have spoken at events and then people come up to me afterwards and you know tell me something. I mean, if somebody comes up to me and hands me their business card and walks away, I guarantee you that by the time I get to the airport, I have forgotten. Like, I was like, why is this in my pocket? But there have been people who have struck up interesting conversations. You know, look at also, it doesn't hurt to be on panels because you will meet really interesting people. Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Build Your Network podcast, the only top-rated show committed to helping you grow your business, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Let's get into the show. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Build Your Network podcast. Today, I am super excited to bring back on a friend of mine, Jason Pfeiffer. Jason is the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, author of the book, Build for Tomorrow, a startup advisor and host of two podcasts, Build for Tomorrow. Yes, it's the same name as the book, which we're going to talk about, and a show about the smartest solutions to our most misunderstood problems uh, called Problem Solvers. And uh, that's going to be about entrepreneurs overcoming the odds in their business. Jason, what's up, dude? Welcome back to build your network. Thank you. It is great to be back. Yes, sir. So I want to talk about the book first, uh, just because uh, I want to make sure that we talk about it at some point during the interview. And uh, usually people are most engaged at the beginning. So let's chat about that right now. (laughs) I appreciate everybody listening. Hello, uh, people who are engaged at the beginning. It's nice to see you here. Yes, exactly. All of you that are listening right now, I want you to pay attention for the next couple of minutes specifically, because I love, I for one, love seeing books come out that have the same name as a podcast. Mm. Because this is a conversation that I have with authors pretty frequently. As you know, I'm a podcast guy and I preach podcasting to a lot of people. And I talk with authors who are like, ah, yeah, you know, I'm I'm thinking about starting a podcast, but I have this book coming out and I I want to just like get the book done and taken care of. I'm like, man, you're probably missing out on so many insights and conversations and information that you could add and package into this book what came first, man? The chicken or the egg? The the podcast? I had the idea for the book? Did it kind of come out of the podcast? Or was it, I always wanted to write a book. So I started a podcast to get some more information. No. So it is... It's funny. It's a really, really cool thing that you're asking me here because the answer is complicated, but also has been so instructive in how I have built myself, my message, my brand, so to speak. And so let me tell it to you. Okay. I started a podcast back in 2016 called Pessimists Archive. And it was in collaboration with this guy who had started a popular Twitter feed called Pessimists Archive. And the idea of the show was to understand why people freaked out about things that today we love. So for example, I did an episode about the national moral crisis in 1907 over the teddy bear. It's true. The people were freaking out. Like there was like schools were banning teddy bears. Priests were preaching against teddy bears. It was a whole thing. And like, why? It's fascinating, right? And and it turns out like basically everything that you love, people were freaking out about. Bicycles, chess, cars, whatever. It, it like it's all funny and fascinating. So I started this podcast, and and it developed an audience. But a couple interesting things happened. One. Separate from that, I also, as editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, I was also having these really interesting conversations with entrepreneurs. And I was starting to serve them in this way that was totally distinct from Pessimist Archive. And the two audiences like did not understand each other. And people did not... People would see that I have this podcast called Pessimist Archive. And they would say, well, I, I don't understand because you're an optimistic guy. Why do you have this show that's so pessimistic? And I was like, it's not 
about pessimism. It's, it's an archive of pessimism. <laughs> it was too confusing, right? Yeah. It was too confusing. And also I didn't love that I ha- was having these separate conversations about that, where I couldn't bring the audiences together. And I didn't know how to resolve it. And then I hired this consultancy whose name is Pen Name Consulting, run by friends of mine, Adam and Jordan Bornstein. The, the idea was originally to help me grow the podcast. And they, they said, all right, well, the first thing we need to do is understand your audience. And so there's this woman on their team named Rochelle DeVoe. And Rochelle went out and surveyed my audience and um, the podcast audience in particular, and then came reporting back to me. And what she found blew my mind and changed everything. And Let's hear it. what she told me was... Well, she told me a lot of things. But the two big insights were, number one, why do you listen to this show? The answer in one way or another from everybody was because it helps me feel more resilient about the future. Didn't know that. I thought that I was making a history show. Turns out I was making a show that was kind of having a self-help effect. And then even though it's a, it's a report, to be clear, it's like it's a reported show. It's like, it's like I spent a month reporting, interviewing lots of people, put together this like audio documentary. It's like, it's not just a chat show. And then number two, a lot of people were turned off by the name. And when they try to tell their friends about the show, the friends are turned off by the name. Mm. So I have, a, I have a branding problem and I have a audience understanding problem. And I got to tell you, if you are in the business of building anything, you probably do not understand your audience as well as you think you do and as well as you should. And surveying them and getting to know them, either by hiring somebody or doing it yourself, will just pay off in ways you cannot imagine. And so for me... Now I started to think, holy cow, the people who are listening to this podcast, they don't like the name and they are interested in change. Meanwhile, the conversation that I was having with my audience through Entrepreneur was also very interested in change. And I realized I can bring all this together. I have an umbrella subject here that people are very interested in that I have naturally developed because it's a thing that I'm interested in that my audience is interested in. And that is how to navigate change. That is what I'm doing by learning from the smartest people today and from studying the history of innovation. So now I know who I am and I know how I speak. And then the pandemic came along and my friend slash book agent calls me and he's like, you know, you've been talking about doing a book, but you didn't know exactly what it was, but you knew that it would be about change in some way or another. Now is the time. And I realized I have figured out how to marry all of these things that I've been working on thanks to this audience insights research. And I can now write this book that blends together everything. So I decided to change the name of the podcast to what the book was going to be. I went out, I sold a book proposal. I talked to my, ed- my editor. I said, editor, what do you think this book is going to be called? He had seen something that I wrote on Instagram in which I wrote Build for Tomorrow, Not for Yesterday. And he was like, I think that the book should be called Build for Tomorrow. And I said, that's also the name of the podcast. And that's how it <laughs> happened. That is a very insightful question. I really appreciate that. How did the podcast inform a lot of the stuff that you're putting in the book? Was there anything that you found that was maybe surprising to you that didn't come out of any other research besides the podcast? Yeah, you know, it's funny. People ask me what the point of the podcast is. Maybe for people who are listening, if you have a podcast, you're wondering, what is the point of my podcast? Because unless it, you know, it's not making me Joe Rogan money. So what, yeah. why am I doing this? Wait, and, no, it's not doing that. <laughs> it's, it's unfortunately not. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm two hundred million dollars short of two hundred million dollars. <laughs> so instead, what I have found, and the reason that I continue to make the show despite the incredible labor that it is, because it's a lot of work, is I found it to be two things: this podcast, which was once called Pessimist Archive, and is now called Build for Tomorrow. It's an IP factory. That's what I think of it as. It's an IP factory. It forces mm. me to interview people and to have really interesting conversations yeah. and to chase down curiosities. And that 
arms me with this information that I think really separates me from other people in my competitive space because you know, people, if somebody's going to hire me to speak and, I, and I, I do a lot of speaking, you know, it's usually, it's like a company bringing me in to talk to their team. And uh, those, you know, they, they bring in business experts all the time. Those business experts are going to come in with their like business case studies. And so when I walk in and it's like, I'm going to talk about business with you guys, but first let me tell you about this crazy thing that happened in the bubonic plague that informs the decisions that we make now. I think people are like, what? And then, and then by being able to blend this unique information from history that I happen to have because of this other avenue of exploration that I have with the business stuff, I think just really separates me. So anyway, it's an IP factory. And then also it's an opportunity magnet. I found that just really, really smart people have reached out to me, know who I am because of this podcast. I mean, one day I got into bed and I look at my phone if we're going to bed and I have an email from Mark Andreessen, the you know, for the co-founder of Netscape and, and now co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, one of the premier tech venture capital funds. And the whole email is like, this was actually back when the show was called Pessimist Archive. He wrote, he wrote, Pessimist Archive is the greatest podcast, when's the book? And it's like, that doesn't happen if you're just yeah. posting stuff on Instagram, right? Like that happens when you're pushing yourself to do really <laughs> kooky, unique things. And so now I, you know, I, I've kept in touch with Mark. He blurbed my book. You know, it's just, it's an honor. And those kinds of things, IP magnet opportunity or IP factory opportunity magnet. Those are the reasons to do the show, even though it doesn't make me that much money. Opportunity magnet. Yeah, I love that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to steal that and start using that in some of our stuff. Because we, we always call it, we call it engineering serendipity. Mm. You know, we try to, you can't technically engineer serendipity, but if yeah. you could, it would be through <laughs> doing this type of a thing more right. often, right? Okay, so I want to transition a little bit, talk a little bit. So, so for those of you listening, by the way, if you go back in the Build Your Network archives, you can find an entire episode that's a little bit more of a deep dive into Jason's history, his past, his story. We also did an episode with him when he came out with fiction book that he wrote a couple of years ago as well. So you can go back and check out both of those episodes, Build Your Network archives. Today, I want to focus a little bit more on media appearances because I saw something on your Facebook recently. And uh, I'm sure this is just one example of dozens or hundreds or thousands that you get from people who are essentially reaching out because they want something from you. Yeah. And then they do it in a way that is never going to achieve the result that they want from you. So I would love to chat with you a little bit about that. This is Build Your Network. Talk a lot about relationship building. Mm -hmm. What is the right way? Everybody knows they need to get in media. Everybody knows they need to get in press. Everybody knows it adds credibility. It adds authority. Um, helps you share your story, whatever the reason is that you're doing sure, it. Sure, you know plenty of reasons. It. So what doesn't work? Let's start with that. And then we'll talk about some things that maybe do work. What doesn't work is reaching out with what you want. The problem is that people often reach out to me and they treat me like I'm a service provider, which is to say that they think that my job is to write about them. And uh, like my job is to provide press to people. That's my job. That's not my job. You know, that is a thing that results from my job, but that's not my job. My job and the job of all my peers and colleagues is to serve our readers, serve our audience. That's our jobs. Our jobs are to understand our audience and then to serve them. And that means that sometimes we write about people and the, and we write about them in a way that's going to be of service to our audience. But what we are not doing is serving the people that we're writing about. Mm. So when you reach out to me or my peers and colleagues and you say, hey, how do I get a feature in Entrepreneur Magazine? I would love a feature in Entrepreneur Magazine. Hey, here are all the great things that I've done. 
right? Because the, those are the things that you want everybody to know. None of that is relevant to my audience. And therefore, mm. I have no way to help you. The better way is to understand the way in which a publication tells stories to its audience and why it tells those stories, stories to its audience and how it tells the story about people like you. I'll give you like a kind of dumb, simple example. I was just the other day talking with a founder of a snack food company. And this snack food, I, I, you know, he's trying to understand how to get press. And I said, well, okay, who's your audience? Millennial moms. That's his, that's his audience. Uh, okay, so they're, you know, they're, let's say they're reading cosmopolitan.com. So why don't we go to cosmopolitan.com right now and look at how cosmopolitan.com writes about snacks, right? Because if you were to go, you, you might think, oh, well, I would love if they wrote 20,000 words about my snack company, but they're probably not going to do that, right? So how yeah. do they write about snacks? And the answer is that if you do the search, which I did, is that they write about snacks in list format. The 13 best snacks for the summer, the mm. you know the, the 17 best snacks for whatever, you know, for going on a hike. And so, okay, now you know that. That's how they write about snacks. That's the way in which they're helping their audience. So like what they're thinking is like, let's give people a kind of smorgasbord of things to do for certain events. Now you can reach out to them. And don't reach out to them and say, hey, I make this snack food company. I see that you write lists. Next time you're writing a list, can you put me on it? Because again, that is asking for service from a service provider. And Cosmo, the writer at Cosmo, is not a service provider. They're not here to yeah. serve you. So instead, reach out to them and say, hey, I've really loved your snack You know, uh, your, your snack list. As so someone who's in the snack industry, I, I find it super interesting to see what's on your radar. You know, there's a, a really interesting trend happening in snacks right now that I think your audience would really be interested in. It's this, uh, blah, 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 blah. And I thought it would be really, you know, probably really fun to do a list called like, you know, 17 snacks for blah, blah, blah. And uh, as it happens, uh, my snack uh, it fits that description. Um, love to tell you a little bit about it. But also here are five others that I just really like that I thought maybe you should be aware of. Now, at that point, you are providing value. You are understanding the way in which that person tells a story to their audience so that you can fit that mission. And if you do that, you are so much more likely to be appreciated and to get what you're looking for. You got to put yourself in the mind of the person that you're reaching out to. Exactly. And say, what is it that they're looking for? Not what is it that I'm looking for? Like everybody's looking for something, right? Like that person, like you're talking right. about, especially if it's a magazine, right? Not just like some, you know, online contributor that can, has free will to write about whatever they want to write about or whatever. Right. Like a lot of these staff writers, like based on understanding of their audience, they have to come up with an interesting piece of information that's going to provide value to the audience that they serve. And it's usually probably not even them that has the final say on whether or not they actually get to write about that topic or whatever it is. And so you have to like put on their glasses for a second Right. View the world the way that they view the world and ask yourself, if I were in their shoes, what would be helpful for me? And how can I provide that for that person if I can even provide that for that person? Right. And then let's say you do that and first time nothing happens. On average, how long does it take you? If you get a good, like a well-written email, a well-written pitch or something, and it's completely cold, you have no third-party introduction, you have no validation, no credibility, but you like the way it was written and they did have an interesting idea and you kind of go, that is something I could potentially write about, but you know, maybe that, that company may not be specifically ready for this at this moment. Is there like an average time that you would say that it takes you to sometimes turn around those types of things where that person actually ends up getting the result that they want? Like it's, 
you know, because I think that's the other thing to me is like people just, they have this expectation that they're going to send a cold pitch and then like next week's issue of Entrepreneur Magazine is going to have them <laughs> on the cover. And it's like, yeah, some of these team, things just, they take time. And if, if you, especially if you want these ones that are actually worth the reach outs, these hard to get opportunities, like they're hard to get for a reason. And it's because they're in scarcity. You don't print a new issue of Entrepreneur Magazine every single day. You right. don't have an abundance of openings or slots or angles or pitches or stories. You can only pick a few per month and that's it. So how long should people be expecting for some of these things to actually start taking place if they multiply it out over a long time horizon? If you're talking about a magazine, it can be a very long time. I mean, first of all, a magazine works on a three-month lead time. So you know, you, you and I are talking in July right now. And I am close to closing the September issue of Entrepreneur. And we're already planning out the October issue. So you know, we work in advance. Digital has a faster rate. So that could be anything. But still, you know, I mean, I, I, there are stories on the digital side that'll come in and won't run for weeks because people are busy because it's got to go through a bunch of edit. There's, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why they're on the desk, even digital. There could be all sorts of reasons why something doesn't run immediately. People could be busy. It could take them a while to write it. It could take a while for somebody to edit it. Things don't turn around fast. They just straight up don't. And I will tell you, people have pitched me something. And then I ran a story about it two years later. I mean, because it wasn't right for something that we were working on right now. And then a long time goes by and we're having a conversation. We're like, oh, we should do a package on this where we're looking for this specific kind of story. And then I'm like, oh, I, I talked to that person. Let me figure that, figure out where to find them again. And, yeah. uh, and then we would run it. So it is an uncontrollable environment. It just is. And yeah. you have to kind of know that going into it. Do you, do you ever have people that um, almost like spite you because you're not willing to accept their request immediately? Or they almost have this level of like, well, I'll show you and I'll go get in this other publication and, you know, screw that guy because he said no <laughs> or whatever, you know? Very rarely will somebody actually articulate that to me, but occasionally yeah. people will try to argue with me, right? They'll reach out and they'll pitch me and I'll say, you know, thanks, but this isn't a fit. And then they will try to argue for why it is a fit. And, uh, you know, that's very annoying. I don't <laughs> really, I'm not into that because look, I get it. I get it that, I mean, look, media is, is, a, is a subjective enterprise here, right? I and my colleagues are making a decision every day about what we think is going to be of value to our audience. And somebody else might have a different answer to that. And that is fine because there's no right answers here. But that's the decision that we made. And I'm just not going to get bullied into, <laughs> exactly. into making a different decision. Yeah, that's not going to be the thing that, that flips it from a no to a yes. Right. That's, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that flips it from a no to a hard no. Yeah. And that was kind of my point in asking it is like, don't screw yourself in your potential for the two year from now opportunity right. because you don't have enough patience to wait until that happens. It's totally. kind of that whole like Gary Vee thing that he always talks about, which is the... People often overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. Mm. And I find that to be the case a lot of times, even when people pitch me, like with our podcasts, is like, you know, we have a pretty successful or well known show. And so we get, I don't know, 50 to 75 pitches every month for our yeah. like four to eight guest spots that we have. And it's just impossible to say yes to everybody. Right. Now people that come on and then they ruin any chance of any potential collaboration or feature because they're so hard nosed about, well, you know, but why, how could you not want to interview me? I'm amazing type of this, this like mentality, you know what I mean? And it's like, well, I mean, you were on the list for like four or five months when we have openings, but like, 
not anymore. Now you're not. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, like there's no, sh- like the bottom line is that there's no shortage of good angles, good stories, good people, interesting interviews. There's no shortage of that out there. There is a shortage of good podcasts, good publications, good journalists. They're like, the bottom line is there's much more demand on that side than the other side. So like sometimes just be okay with the fact that, hey, it's not going to work out right now. But if I burn the bridge, it's absolutely not going to work out now or in the future. So if it's not going to work out now. May as well just continue the relationship, keep things open, try to add value in the meantime. And then maybe in a year or two, try it again. You know what I mean? But you can't just like go all in on the first one and then practice your telemarketing sales don't take no for an answer idea on these journalists totally. or podcasters. Totally. It's it is I mean we shouldn't belabor this too much because this is this I feel like really is the exception not the rule when people are like this but for what is for whatever it's worth I think that you can think of every pitch that you send as part of a ongoing relationship even if it's a kind of one-sided relationship right which is to say you pitch Either the person says no, or maybe they say nothing. Just kind of keep at it. Don't keep at it every week. That's going to get really <laughs> annoying. But reach out, you know, maybe give it a few months and then try a different angle or, you know, or like spend a little more time with their work and then reach out and say, hey, you know, I was just listening to this episode podcast you did. Super interesting. Made me think about this other thing. And I, you know, I thought maybe I, you know, I, I could have something to contribute. And I will tell you as a guy on the receiving end of this stuff, and maybe you've experienced this yourself. As people pitch, even if I'm not interested in their pitches most of the time, because I just see their name over and over again, their name starts to just be kind of familiar. Right. <laughs> and then and then once somebody's familiar, you feel like, oh, do I know that person? I feel like I guess I should probably respond to that because the name is familiar. So maybe I owe them something. And so you can ju- just keep doing it. It's you can, you can have the don't take no for an answer attitude. You just can't do it on a short horizon. Yes. Yeah. Familiarity breeds trust. Familiarity right. beats trust. Right. Just, yeah. Keep adding value over a long period of time. I, I always try to make it that way where if I'm reaching out to somebody and I get a no, regardless of if it's I want to interview this person for my show or I'm trying to get booked on somebody else's show or I'm trying to get myself in a publication or we're pitching yep. a story here. I try to ask myself when I get the no, instead of being like, well, screw that guy, we're done with them. It's more of like, okay, well, what are they looking for right now? And can I make maybe an introduction to somebody in my network that would be able to fit inside of the current article that they're writing when I might not be a good fit? Yeah. And people remember that kind of stuff when they're looking to write their next article or when they're looking to do their next episode or, or record another interview. They remember the fact that like, oh, this person didn't make me feel bad for saying no, but they actually reached out and offered me something that I was looking for at the time that was actually really valuable. And they'll, they'll want to reciprocate some of that, if at all possible, in the future. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented 
with quality candidates, like, like, like hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you. That work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Okay. So how do we build better relationships so we can create more familiarity with people specifically who are decision makers in press or podcasts or newsletters or YouTubers or content creators or anybody that has an audience? Social media is a really great place to do that. I got to tell you, I have so many people in my DMs who are... They're either entrepreneurs who, of course, I know want to be featured in entrepreneur in some way, or they're in PR and it's their job to try to get people featured in entrepreneur. And um, you know what the smartest of them are doing? They are not pitching me. They're mm. not pitching me. What are they doing instead? They're commenting. They're seeing something that I posted and they are just responding to it like a human being. And they're doing it on Instagram or they're doing it on LinkedIn. And again, it builds this familiarity. And you know, I often forget which one of them are even PR people, right? They're just they're just a you know a nice person who responded yeah. to a to a thing. And I will tell you that. Look, just being nice to me on social media does not mean that I like will put you in the magazine. Of course. But it certainly does mean that when you send me an email, I'm going to pay attention to it. Because I'll feel like a jerk if I don't, right? I'll, I'll like like you spent all this time on my work and now I, I I can't even give you the courtesy of reading your email. Of course I'm going to read your email. And so I think you want to play a long slow game. I mean, it's not the only way you could do it. You could hire a publicist and they could blast you out to everybody and you could hope to get some pieces of press out of that. But if you're doing it yourself and you want to just kind of build it into the way that you operate and you're thinking long-term, then then you play a long, slow game and you just build a relationship that is not based on transaction. It, right? like, it's fine. Some people will do this and then they'll give up the game really fast. right? So they'll, they'll comment like... I'll post something on an Instagram story and they'll respond, which, you know, when somebody responds to a story, it shows up as a DM. And so I get this DM and it'll uh, it'll just be a nice response to something that I posted, whatever it is, right? Maybe like a quick thought or something. And so I, I'll respond and I'll say, uh, oh, that's funny or, oh, you know, that's a good point or whatever. And then the very day, the, the 10 minutes later, right? They're like, oh, well, now that I got your attention, I would love to tell you about, right? And it's like, eh. It's almost like an autoresponder. Yes. Like, yes. Yeah. Like that is even more, honestly, that is more offensive than just sending me a pitch. Because it, it's like the first thing was it came with 
the agenda. Like right. it, it was almost like sneaky. It was like, it was, oh, was I thought totally you were just genuinely being a nice person. Exactly. But you were just using this as a way to get in my DMs and now exactly. you're pitching me. Thanks. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And it's like, <laughs> right. And it's like, you know what? Look, if you want to pitch me cold, fine, go for it. I mean, look, we've we've run plenty of stories based on cold pitches. It's sure. not, it's not like I'm saying that's a terrible thing question. to do. It's right. it's it's a fine thing to do. But if you want to increase your hit rate, I think that spending some time building familiarity and relationships can really help. I think that's something that some people get wrong is they'll look at people in positions of power, positions of authority, people who are decision makers, however you want to frame it or, or call it. And they they their default is to think that that person is set up to say no to everybody. Mm. And in my experience, I've found that people like yourself, a lot of other people that I've talked to that are in those similar positions, it's your default to want to help people. It's your yeah. default to want to add value to the lives of other people. Right. Your job as the person reaching out is to make it as easy as possible for those people to be nice to you and try to put yourself in their shoes and think about like, man, if I had 300 people a week reaching out to me and asking me for stuff, what would I want to see in my DMs? Oh, probably not another thing asking me for another thing. <laughs> Probably just something that says, hey, thanks, or hey, keep up the good work, or I read this article you put out. It was awesome. Wow, this interview that you did with so-and-so really rocked my world. Or like, Here, here's a retweet on this other... Like, Think about what they would want to see and then do that instead of the thing that the other 300 people are doing. And sometimes I think it's hard for people to conceptualize when they don't have 300 people reaching out to them, but you've got to really try to put yourself in that person's shoes. And and see the world from their perspective for a second. But I know we're kind of beating a dead horse with that point. But I, I just think that it's it's so important because people unfairly, I think, get upset. People who have a lot of demands in their time or get a lot of pitches because they just assume that they're out to get them or that they're just being mean. And it's like, no, like those people, they, they want to help. They yeah. genuinely want to help. You know, They're probably in that position because they learned that helping people is a great yeah. way to continue to level themselves up. You know what I mean? It's just that you literally can't help every single person that reaches out to you or else that's all you would be doing and you wouldn't even be able to do your job. So like, how do I make it as easy as possible for that person to say yes to, to helping me out and, and, and give me what I want at some point in the distant future if that's how the relationship progresses? Where do, uh, where do people hang out, man? Where's the best place, uh, you know, uh, people, who, people who are maybe in the press, people who write uh, articles, publications, content creators, where's a good place to kind of initiate those conversations besides social media? That's an interesting question. It is so diffuse that I don't know that there's a specific place that I can point to where these people are hanging out. They are everywhere. And you know, you probably don't want to go up to them at a bar and be like, hey, uh, I got a great story pitch for you. But uh, you know, being going to conferences, you know, go, going to yeah. places where there's an established, this is, we are here to talk about this. Um, I think it'd be really useful. I've met a lot of really wonderful, interesting people when I have spoken at events and then people come up to me afterwards and you know, tell me something. I mean, if somebody comes up to me and hands me their business card and walks away, I guarantee you that by the time I get to the airport, I have forgotten. Like, I was like, why is this in my pocket? It's in the trash. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but there have been people who have struck up interesting conversations. You know, look at also, it doesn't hurt to be on panels because you will meet really interesting people. Before I got to the place where I am now, where, you know, very fortunate people pay me to come and like give a keynote. I did a ton of panels, panel after panel after panel. And the reason I did it was was really really two reasons. Number one was because it was just a good opportunity to work material out on the fly in front of people, right? Like somebody, you get asked a question, it prompts a story, you tell yeah. the story, people like it, and you're like, oh, this is something maybe I should I should put into a keynote. Um, but number two was to meet the panelists because panelists, 
often have people in your industry or if you're interested in meeting media, there's so, you know, there's just so much media on panels. People always, you know, when, when being having a career in media, people always wanted me to be on random panels. And um, that's great because it means that you're generally in touch with them before, after. If you're really good on the on stage, you're memorable. And yeah. uh, you know people are always like, oh, stay in touch afterwards. So that's a great thing to do. And look, if you're not in a position to be invited to be on panels, just show up and start talking to people. Get, you know, Run over to somebody after they get off stage. People are generally happy to chat. And if I can add something to that too, the, the thing that I would say is that if you're not in a position to be invited to speak on the panel then be the one to host the panels. Ah, smart. Um, yes. I think being a host in whatever capacity that you can is a really great way to get in touch with people who maybe wouldn't had wouldn't have had time uh, otherwise, especially if you have a little bit of money in the bank, maybe you're, you know, you're running a successful business and you want to put a foot forward and maybe get your name out there a little bit more, meet some more people in podcasts or more content creators or more people that have audiences that uh, that have uh, the people in them that you want to be connected to. Put a little bit of money out there. Pay Jason for a keynote and get him to come out to your event. Like you probably have a better chance of connecting with the guy if you paid him to be at your event because you're the host and you're the person that's running the show at that event. Um, start Again, I always come back to the podcast thing because that's been my number one way that I've been able to connect with all the people that I've uh, been able to connect with has been through just having the show and being able to host people, to have conversations with people. It also um, you know, operates as a value add to bring people on to, to talk about a book or to talk about a new offer or talk about a software they're launching or talk about whatever it is and give a little bit more exposure to the things that they are working on, the things that are important to them. If you are hosting an event, you're hosting a panel, you're hosting a meetup, you're hosting a podcast, a YouTube channel, a blog, a newsletter, whatever it is, and you're able to share that with somebody else, found that to be an excellent way to be able to kind of get your foot in the door and connect uh, with those people initially to to be able to then start to build a relationship that lasts over a longer you know period of time. I second all of that. So everybody talks about the value add. At what point is the value add... <sighs> superfluous because people can tell you're only trying to add value because you want to ask for something on the back end versus just being willing to offer something without having anything to ask for in return. Well, with media, it's tricky because responsible journalists, they're not in an exchange business, right? Reciprocation. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're really, if you're doing it right, you you are not supposed to get or take anything either in advance or afterward. And the, the most journalistic outfits in the country even have very specific policies about this. Like for, for example, I, I could be slightly wrong about this, but the New York Times policy, I believe, is that nobody there can... So if you're a reporter, you are not allowed to accept anything that is not of a promotional nature and over $25 in value. So, you know, if you go somewhere and someone hands you a promotional pen, that's fine. You can take the pen. But if somebody gives you a gift, you are not allowed to accept it. And I think that's good. I really do. Because otherwise, it it clouds the ultimate purpose for the reporter, which again, is not to just provide someone with glowing press. It is to write with the audience in mind. And so you have to be mindful of what is going to serve the audience, not serve the person that you're writing about. So, you know... All that said, um, I certainly appreciate if somebody, you know, if somebody does something kind of of a non-monetary nature, I appreciate that. For example, let's say you connect me with someone who's going to be really, who's really interesting and smart or something, right? You know, you, you reach out and you're like, hey, I, I've seen you 
uh, write about this stuff, or maybe maybe this is a person who already is connected with on Instagram. And, and um, I see that you've got a list coming up of a uh, hundred um, influential women, and uh, I, you know I happen to know this this woman who's just fantastic, and I think that you should you should know about her. And if I look at it and I think, oh, that actually is very useful. Thank you. You know, like, I appreciate that. That's I appreciate that. You know, I I agree that in general, if you're if we're if we're taking the kind of complications of press out of things, then being mindful of value add as a way not to be transactional and like I've given you something now I expect something in return, yeah. but rather just build it into the way in which you operate, which is to say you're just doing things yeah. so regularly that you're not even keeping track. You're not thinking about, well, I just did this for this person. I just put it on my spreadsheet and therefore... Right. Then it's not going to weigh on you where you're like, oh, well, I... I did 10 nice things and I only got one in return, right? <laughs> right? Just build it into your normal operating procedure where you're going to do nice things for people because it is going to build a reputation for you as a person who does nice things. And people do nice things for people who do nice things. And I think it should really be as simple as that. Always provide at least 51% of the value in any relationship that you had. Another another Gary Vee-ism uh, mm. that I picked up from him pretty early on, uh, actually good before one. I started the show. And then, uh, and then was furthered when I read Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, uh, which is one of the best books on relationship building that I've ever read. I recommend everybody pick up a copy of that one. Mm. But yeah, uh, always giving without the expectation of receiving anything in return. Digging your well before you're thirsty is, in my opinion, the best strategy for long-term success that anybody can implement in their lives for free today without having to do anything else. Yeah, I'll tell you the story, which I love. So there, years ago, I was speaking at a entrepreneur event called Entrepreneur Live in California, I think. And there was a cocktail hour afterwards and a lot of people were coming up to me and talking to me. And I walked away with you know a bunch of business cards that I threw in the garbage. And then one of my colleagues afterwards said, Hey, did you see the guy who Facebook Lived giving you his business card? And I said, No. And so I went and I found it. I was tagged in it. So it wasn't that hard to find. I just hadn't noticed. And it's hilarious. It's... So this guy, his name is Jeff Peterson. He's in. He's he runs a business in Wisconsin, and he he's like across the room, and so it's like camera, camera, you know, like camera opens, and it's Jeff, and he's in this busy room, and like I'm off in the distance in the back, and Jeff's like, "This is Jeff Peterson reporting from Entrepreneur Live. I'm gonna go give the editor in chief my business card. Here we go." And then uh, and then Jeff like navigates the room. And uh, the guy who's holding the camera does a sort of like nature documentary style, like, you know, he has now navigated yeah. <laughs> around the woman with the cocktail, right? And it's like, and, uh, and, uh, and he gets to me and he doesn't do anything memorable at all. He basically, I mean, like I watch him do this. I didn't even have a memory of it. He just like shook, I said, hello. He shook my hand. I was talking to somebody else. I said, hello. He handed me his business card. And then he like came back and, you know, he, he signed off, right? Uh, you know, uh, success or whatever he said. So I thought this was funny and I commented and I said, that was great or whatever the hell I said, didn't say much. And then Jeff reached out to just say how much he liked the event and then reached out like a, like a couple weeks or a month later because he was going to be in New York. And he, and he was like, hey, can I, can I come by to the office just to say hi? I, I promise I will be 15 minutes in and out. I know you're busy. Just, uh, I just want to say hi. And you know, I would usually not say yes to this kind of random request, but this was a delight. And so I thought, sure, the guy who Facebook lived me the business card, you can come by. And so he comes by, and I can't remember if he brought this or if he mailed it to me afterwards. He might have brought it. He brought me a bottle of whiskey from Wisconsin, 
along with two glasses that say drink Wisconsibly. And uh <laughs> <laughs> um and uh and you know, I just liked him. He's just a yeah. nice guy. And so we stayed in touch. And then at some point after, he asked if if I would be on the podcast for his. He's got this, he's got this careers program for local kids, and they have a podcast. And I said, sure. And so I did that. And then he's got a event to fundraise for this thing. And he asked if he could bring me out to be a speaker at the event. Uh, you know, he would pay me. And I said, but not not my usual rate because it's a fundraiser. But I said, sure, because I liked him. Yeah. And and this, and now, you know, Jeff and I are, we, we have a, you know, nice friendly relationship. And this is, I think, a perfect example of how to do it right, right? Like mm. Jeff didn't ask for anything for a long time. And when he did ask for things, it felt genuine. Yeah. And it really wasn't even for him. It was right. for this right. organization that he's got. And I don't think that he had a plan. I think his plan was just to be funny on Facebook. Like, I don't know that he had a plan past that, but it evolved into what it was. And he just, I think by being genuine and nice and focused primarily on building a relationship and not on anything else, he initiated and ultimately built this very nice friendship. And that's wonderful. And that's how to do it. Love that story, man. It's a fantastic way to wrap up the conversation. Um, for those of you who listen to the show a bunch, you know I always ask the who you know or what you know question. You're going to have to go back to one of our previous episodes of Jason to hear his answer to the who you know or what you know question. Because we ran <laughs> out of time today talking about how to build relationships the right way, uh, yeah. which I think a lot of people that are listening will find value in. Jason, Build for Tomorrow is coming out in September. If you're listening to this right now, it's probably September because we're probably not going to release this until the book comes out. <laughs> is there a specific website or URL that you want people to go to to buy this book, Jason? Or is it just anywhere where books are sold? It's anywhere where books are sold. If you, for some reason, cannot think of a place where books are sold, you can go to jasonpfeiffer.com slash book where there are buttons to buy it everywhere. But yes, anywhere you go to find books, you find Build for Tomorrow. I would love for you to pick it up. I'd love for you to reach out and let me know what you thought. Build for Tomorrow. Guys, I can personally vouch for the fact that if you take the time to write Jason an email and... uh, Try to keep it short, sweet, to the point because he's got a lot of emails to get through. But he will, he'll always try to reach back out um, and say thank you. So please go pick up a copy of his book. Reach out to him. Tell him you said or tell him that you heard about him here on the show. And then uh, for those of you that are on Guestio, so is Jason. So hit him up over there if you want to interview him or bring him on uh, your event or anything like that. You can contact him over there. Jason, thanks so much for coming to the show, man. Always a pleasure. We'll uh, reach out when this goes live. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate your support and great to be here again. Hey, hey, thanks for listening to this episode. That's it for today. As you all know, this show is completely free. Our only ask is that if you found anything valuable in this episode or in any of the episodes that you've listened to, then share it with somebody else and leave us a quick rating review in whatever platform you're listening to right now. It would be super, super helpful for us. Uh, so that's it for today, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. Catch you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.